God for what he has done. My name is Pastor Nate. It feels like it's been a while since I said that. Um, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Um, I, I'm actually up here to say thank you. Uh, thank you to you guys. I thank God. I praise God for you for the last three months in our time as a family to be able to step away for a bit and to learn what it means to rest. I know some people's like, did you rest? I'm like, yeah, I did rest. But they don't seem like it's hard. Like, it's, it's legitimately hard to rest in God's sovereignty and to let him, he's in control, and uh, to rest in that. But I want to say special thanks to, I'm pausing, and I hate doing these things, and Matt, Pastor Matt can attest to that, uh, but I'm going to make sure that people get thanked. I want to thank uh, Beth and, and Jeff, our staff, and Bev for filling into Beth. We thank so much for your work throughout the summer. For Pastor Matt, uh, Pastor Matt was steering the ship and uh, for three months by himself. And we praise God for you. We thank him for you. You did well. Good and faithful servant for Pastor Sam, along with our elders. We got some great elders for Dave Noble and Dave DeHaan and Peter Mayberry. Please be continuing to pray for them. So I just want to say thank you so much for allowing me to have that time to rest throughout this summer. I didn't know I needed it as badly uh, about week two. I was like, yeah, I'm glad. Um, So I'm thankful for that. But today we're starting a new sermon series, as you see in 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 the book of Acts. And I haven't preached for three months. So let's do this. And I've encouraged you uh, to read it through in one sitting, and I really would encourage you. I've been blessed by that the last couple of weeks. I've been reading through Acts or listening to Acts, and it is fantastic. And it's nice to read through something like Acts or even a letter in one sitting because it gives us a complete picture of what is happening. I've said this before, but how many of you get a letter in the mail and you sit there and you read a couple of paragraphs and then you put it down and then maybe you pick it up in a week or so? You don't do that. Here is another account of what God has done. And as you read through that, I would like you to ask three questions. And this comes from the book, A Message of the New Testament, Promises Kept. Uh, is a great book by Mark Dever, and I would encourage you to read, uh, ask these questions as you read it through. It should take about two and a half hours, okay? And someone's going to be like, ah, oh, two and a half hours, and I'll say, did you watch the latest Marvel movie? <laughs> and I bet you can sit for two and a half hours and read a book. But you could also do it creatively. You could do it audibly. I did it a few times while mowing the lawn, just mindlessly listening and mowing the lawn. You can have your significant other read it to you, and you can bask in the wonder of their eyes as you listen to their voice, whatever you want. But I encourage you to read it through. Spouses, this would be a great thing to do together, a great thing. In Acts 1, 1 to 2, we see that 
the who of where the book of who wrote the book of Acts. And in this sermon, we're going to be taking an introduction to Acts and doing a high view of what is happening. And over the next following long time, we'll be taking it apart and going verse by verse into what God has to say through the book of Acts. But for this sermon, we're going to be taking some time of a high view. And in Acts 1, 1 to 2, we see right off the bat who was meant to receive this letter, this book. Acts was written to a man named Theophilus. He was probably a wealthier person because, and a wealthier believer because he's the one who was supporting the Luke, the writer of Acts, to write this letter. We don't know much about him because he's only mentioned at the beginning. But it would explain why he is the person who funded this work. As we take time to walk through Acts together, one of the biggest things every reader, every reader will have to work through is if what we are reading is descriptive or prescriptive. So the question is, what is Luke doing here? Is it just talking about what took place or is he saying that what has happened here is to be repeated? And this is a conversation amongst many Christians and many believers. We have brothers and sisters that differ on this. Another way of looking at it is, does Luke mean to have a continued expectation that what is being talked about is to be practiced or repeated? And that's what we will walk through together as we get to look through this window, this unique window into a unique era of time when God, when Jesus himself establishes this young church and it begins to grow. Our graphic is actually, if you notice, the center is hopefully Jerusalem, kind of with a ripple effect. It goes from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Acts is a sequel, and it ultimately is an account of how God used his disciples to fulfill the promise that we saw with Jesus' last words to his disciples in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But sequels are often hit and miss, aren't they? I went to go see a sequel not too long ago for a big franchise not too long ago, and I walked out of that so disappointed. But that's not going to be the case with Acts. Because you see the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the people of God as they begin to talk about the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. Something great comes out of that. And Luke ended his previous book with the ascension of Jesus, and Luke wrote the gospel according to Luke. But here in Acts, we see how the ascension signifies a new beginning. When we study Acts, it gives us a unique view of God working among and through this young church, but also how the early church was shaped by the gospel. Acts answers the fundamental question, who is Jesus? I think sometimes we get blinded by the title of it, the Acts of the Apostles. Yeah, the apostles and the early church did lots of things. But even in the apostles' actions, they had one goal and one goal alone. Make much of Jesus and proclaim him, his death and his resurrection. So I'm going to read Acts 19. I know we're going to, it's a little bit of a spoiler alert. 
But Acts 19, verses 11 to 20, the word of the Lord says this, as you take some time to get there. If you're looking for a Bible, we have some Bibles in the chair underneath and some of the shelves. But the word of the Lord says this, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the uh, internet Jews, exorcists, undertook to invoke the name of Jesus Christ over those who had evil spirits, saying, I injure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them. Yikes mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And, they, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. The Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And verse 20 is the catch of it all. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Awesome, God, we thank you so much for today. God, it's so good to be back with my family. And Lord, I pray that as we continue to worship you through the preaching of your word, that we would worship you in our listening, that I would worship you in my preaching, and that we would make much of you today. So, dear Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified, and I want to speak of you and praise you and praise your name. And God, I can't do this on my own. I can't make this turn out well on my own. So by your Spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed, with the necessary power and appropriate affection. Lord, use this sermon to bring glory to your name above all things, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. When we look at Acts, we'll see three things. The message... The mission and the means. When we look at Acts, it is a story of God's grace sweeping over like a flood. And I know that might not be a timely thing as we think about certain parts in our country, but we understand what a flood does. And God's grace sweeps over the world like a flood. It starts with the cross and resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem and reaches to the ends of the earth. And nothing is more prominent in Acts than the gospel being spread. We see the answer to what is the message about Jesus being answered through the earliest of witnesses. Acts is an important witness to help us see the core message about who is Jesus in, a, in amazingly diverse ways. But one thing is always true. It's always the same gospel. For example, in Acts 17, verses 22 to 23, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Archibus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. I think that's very similar to our world, by the way. 
For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inception to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The apostles, the apostle Paul starts his proclamation of the gospel by actually starting where the Athenian philosophers are, with where they know and what they know. When Stephen spoke to the Jewish people in, uh, in, Jerusalem, in Jerusalem in chapter 7, he gives an amazing account from Old Testament of how God calls him, how God calls Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans and calls him to the promised land and makes promises and recounts Egypt. And how God calls the people of God out of Egypt, out of slavery, and brings them to the promised land eventually. In chapter 13, we see Paul and Barnabas arguing with the, uh, that the prophecies of the Scriptures had been fulfilled in their time, pointing to Jesus. But in all the diversity, the gospel message of Jesus Christ was always preached. And we see that throughout Acts. In Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In Acts 8.35, then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. We see it in Acts 9, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, saying of Paul, to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. We see it in Acts 17.8 with other philosophers when they say what does this babbler wish to say and others said he seems to be preaching of a foreign divinities because he was preaching paul was preaching jesus and the resurrection even as the apostle paul has back to jerusalem where he will eventually be arrested for preaching the gospel he says in Acts twenty two fifteen, for you will be my witness for, for uh, sorry, you will be my witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. But here's the question: So, what is the message that is being preached? Jesus' life was preached. Was the first thing talking about who, what he did while he was on his earthly ministry. In Acts 10, in 37 to 39, we see that you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on, the, on a tree. But even with that, Jesus' life isn't the focus when the early church begins to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus' death is even more emphasized in his life, which is odd, right? I like reading biographies. I have a few of them in my office. I enjoy them. I love hearing about how God worked in amongst people. I like hearing about history and all those things. I'm a bit of a nerd like that. That's okay. They always focus on the life. And then there's like a quick little paragraph, like, and they die. But it's not the same with Jesus. They focus a little bit on his life. Focus a lot on his death. It's more emphasized. 
The disciples didn't try to win people over with just looking at all the good things that Jesus did, and he did a lot. We see at the end of John that it wouldn't even fill a book, or it would overflow. There wasn't some sort of glowing endorsement of Jesus' life. The people who proclaimed Jesus were honest and straightforward about the fact that all that Jesus taught and said was rejected. How often have you been trained with that and with the gospel? Acts 4.11 says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. It's ironic how often we spend time trying to convince someone to become a Christian, but the early church simply presented the full gospel that Christ died for our sins and rose again. They weren't ashamed of it. They proclaimed it loudly and died for it. But why would Jesus' death have so much emphasis? Because the gospel is summed so well up in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died for our sins and rose again. There's a lot of boldness in the proclamation of the gospel and acts. They didn't sugarcoat the amazing fact that not only Jesus died, but as they proclaimed the truth to the Jewish people, as the disciples were seeking to win Jewish people to Christianity, they pointed their finger at them and said, not only did Jesus die, but you're the one that killed him. You know what the outcome of that sermon was? 3,000 people were saved. We see that in Acts 2, 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And Peter, who preached that sermon, wasn't talking figuratively. The people that were listening to his sermon at that moment of time were there at the time when Jesus was being crucified. But Jesus' death wasn't any ordinary death. It was a death that was fulfilled, Old Test- that was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, as we see in Isaiah 53, 3. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And it was this that would be the stumbling block for many, but sweet sweetness to so many others. Jesus' death pays a price for sins that we committed, and that is why the early church, as we see in Acts, emphasized his death so much, because his death pays something that we couldn't pay ourselves. The gospel message proclaimed in Acts by the disciples doesn't end with his death, though, because if it was that, then we're all in trouble. But Jesus being risen from the dead and being glorified at the hand of God the Father... The message included Jesus' Jesus' resurrection. So why is the resurrection so important, you may ask? Because it proves beyond a shadow of doubt that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. The Messiah, the Christ, the Promised One. In Acts 9, verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. So they proclaimed it at, as it is in Acts 28.31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And why is the message about Jesus having his life, death, and resurrection so important? Because the gospel is summed up in Christ died for our sins and rose again. The death of Jesus was not an accident. 
It was not an act of man. It was an act of God. It was part of God's sovereign plan of redemption. It was the will of the Father that the Son would be crushed for our iniquities, for our sin, because Jesus died for our sins and he rose again. Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, spoken of from the very beginning in Genesis 3, was crucified on the cross, fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament for our sins because we rebelled against God. We committed treason against him. Our only right in this life is hell itself. How many times do we complain about our rights? And our only right is hell as we stand before the throne of God. And I love the old hymn that says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count by lost and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. The gospel tears down any sense of entitlement that we may have. We have all lied. We've all taken the Lord's name in vain, every single last one of us, especially when we define taking the Lord's name in vain, when we doubt his character. God is good all the time, right, we say? Do we believe that in the midst of suffering? And the Bible is clear that all have, fallen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the outcome of sin is death, and that we are objects of God's wrath. But, praise God for that word, Jesus Christ died for our sins. He paid the price. He paid the price for our treason meaning that anyone who believes in him, puts their trust in him, leans into that promise that Jesus paid it all on the cross, will be saved. So let me ask you, what does it mean for you that Jesus is your Savior? Because it's not just good enough to listen to this okay sermon and then leave and forget about it. This makes the message about Jesus significant. And if it is so significant, you and I are left with only two options. Either accept that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus is him, or reject him. The early Christians tell us a message that says, either your sins will be wiped out by Jesus, or you will be wiped out by your sins. That's the gospel. This is the salvation. There is salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. Acts 13, 39, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Justification, being made right before God, comes from believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. The goal of the message is for Jesus to be worshipped. This is why we come and we sing these songs and we listen to a sermon and we give our tithes and our offerings is to bask in the wonder of as, as people who are completely and utterly undeserved, wretched sinners who have experienced the amazing grace of God. But it doesn't end there, does it? We want more people to know about Jesus, don't we? We want more people in the city of London to come into the kingdom of God. We want that. We pray for that. We, God uses the faithful. Notice I say faithful. 
not perfect witness of who Jesus is to call people to himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what do we do with this gospel message? I've already said it, but Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, the message of Jesus is that Christ died for our sins and that he rose again. The early church proclaimed that with such a great boldness that they were stoned in prisons for that and persecuted. That those who were once objects of God's wrath could have a right relationship with the holy God. That is mind-blowing to me because the early church received the message. They They also have a mission. So the mission, when we look at Acts, we see that a major theme is the growth and the movement of the gospel. It doesn't stop in Jerusalem. Imagine if that happened. I don't think any of us would be here. The church begins to be persecuted. You think that that might stop it, right? This early, young, weak church, babies in the faith. And the authorities start persecuting them in great and amazing ways. A man named Saul does it. Saul was a bad guy. Paul was a good guy. As my kids often say to me. The persecution couldn't stop it. It actually makes it grow like wildfire. The Jerusalem church sends out missionaries like Paul and Barnabas to the Gentiles. God uses faithful disciples like men like Apollos or women like Phoebe who are used by God to spread the gospel and the strength in the church. And the gospel goes to all kinds of people everywhere. The mission is what we have already seen in Acts 1 verse 8. The mission is to take the message about Jesus to the ends of the earth. And I think this is what I was struggling with because I grew up in a culture where we put a huge emphasis on missions. And we always called missions out there, like in, I don't know, the Caribbean or something. Missions is walking across the hallway in your building. It's walking across the streets and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. I had that opportunity this sabbatical, actually, (laughs) with my neighbor, talking to him about the gospel. And I praise God for those things and how he sovereignly did that. And I did not do it perfectly, trust me. But I sought to be faithful. I wonder if the young Christians were being amazed by what they, as they watched the kingdom of God grow in this era in Acts, that they, I wonder if they would ref, were reflecting upon Jesus' words in Mark 4 as, he reflect, as Jesus talked about the mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed which is planted and grows bigger than all the other bushes. I wonder if they thought about that as it continued to grow. I wonder if they were reflecting on Jesus' words The goal from the very beginning of the Bible was that all nations would glorify God. We know that. We see in Genesis 12. 
We see that God desires all nations to glorify him through his chosen people. Even in Jesus' earthly ministry, we see that all nations coming, we see the glimpse of all nations coming like in the Roman centurion in Matthew 8. Or in John 4, we see a Samaritan, and we think of the woman at the well, and we can keep going and going and going and look at examples of how there was a foreshadowing of the good news of Jesus Christ going to the ends of the earth. And then we get to the Pentecost. In Acts 2. And we see this amazing reversal of the curse of the Tower of Babel. I was reflecting upon this not that long ago with some friends of ours at our house. Uh, I was talking about this, and I was thinking how all these languages, all the languages that we speak in this world, and I have no idea how many there are. I'm sure there's hundreds. I have a hard enough time speaking English, let alone another language. So I praise God for people who can do that. And how a, what, was a, what came out of a curse, right? Languages came out of a curse. It was the result of humanity saying, I can be like God. You understand that? But by the time we get to Revelation 7, it's completely redeemed and celebrated. We see the beginning of that in Acts 2. In Acts 7, we see that wonderful passage, which I love. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne of God. Before, this is going to be awesome, guys. And before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, which is amazing, which means that we're not going to get messy fingerprints all over us, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The curse of national and linguistic division that our world so struggles with begins to be reversed even in Acts 2 in that first sermon as the Apostle Peter preaches to all of those nations of all those different tongues. Out of humanity's sin, our pride to be like God is the beginning to be uh, a beginning of a reversal right here at the Pentecost. So that the mission of Jesus to bring the message about Jesus to all nations is being fulfilled from the beginning. And this is amazing. The mission of Jesus is being accomplished by taking what was a curse and turning it into a means that all may hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I thank God for our missionaries like Rebecca Drew who's, who takes time to, to translate the word of God into languages so that people can read it and know it and the Holy Spirit will use that to convict them of their sin and their need of a Savior. I even look around this room and I see it. And I praise God for that. There's a whole sorts of languages. If you're from Nigeria, you have a whole bunch of them that I, I'm going to try and pronounce, but I'm not going to. I have them listed. I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Filipino. We have Korean, Spanish, Arabic, Portuguese, English, Scandinavian. Like, we have all of these languages coming together to do what? Worship one God. To worship God, and we go out seeking that all may worship Him. Last words are important, right? I've been told in the past, and a lawyer could probably tell me I'm wrong, but last testaments are important. Yeah. <laughs> They're important, and Jesus' last testament is in Matthew 28. 
and again in Acts 1, is a mission to that his message would go to the ends of the earth. And we see that happening in Acts as it spreads like a wildfire across the known world. We see this in Acts with Peter and Cornelius, with probably my favorite interaction, because it's the only vision in the Bible with a giant plate of food coming down from heaven. In Acts 10, where Jesus says, with all of these what was called unclean things coming down, is essentially a pig, bacon, coming down and saying, these are clean. Go and take the good news to the Gentiles, to this man named Cornelius. We see it, we have Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13 who are received by the Gentiles, but oddly rejected by the Jews. And we keep going. The mission of Jesus is to take his message to the nations. And Jesus is the entire focus of Acts. And that's why the disciples go and bring his message to the ends of the earth because they want more to worship God. They want more to know who he is. They want more to know the hope that is only found in Jesus Christ. The darkness of our world is so prevalent. So much suffering, so much brokenness, so much loss. So much darkness, and Jesus is the light. Jesus is the entire focus of Acts, and that's why the disciples go and bring that message to the ends of the earth. God uses the faithful witness by imperfect people to do that. Remember, Peter was a denier of Jesus, a man who struggled with legalism, hypocrisy, even in the book of Acts. But he still graciously proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. Later in his letter to the first Corinthians, sorry, to the Corinthians, Paul actually calls himself the least of all apostles because he was the one who persecuted the church. Sometimes we doubt that God can use us. Nah, that's a lie. The mission is to take the message about Jesus, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again to all nations. Not just nations, but the ones across the street, the one across the hallway, the one that's sitting beside you in class, the one that's across the counter at work, wherever it may be, to take it to the nations. Not with perfect people was this mission being accomplished. It was accomplished with broken people who have experienced the message of Jesus. We're just all beggars pointing other beggars to where there's bread. And Jesus uses the bold and faithful preaching of his message to call people to himself. The Holy Spirit gives them a new heart that enables them to believe. And the word of the Lord continued to increase. Guess what? Just as Jesus promised. Which gets to the means. How is this done? Because in Acts 19.20 we see, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What is the means of the spread? What does God use? Here's the crazy thing. Perfect, holy, almighty God, omniscient, omnipotent, all of those things chooses to use you and me. You and me. I'm sure that there could have been a better way, but you and me to go proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Like Paul and Peter, fishermen with no education to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. 
God used signs and wonders, like we see in Acts 5, 15. Again, all of those signs and wonders point to who Jesus is. They always point, the point of a sign of miracle is not to go, hey, cool, I can walk again, was to praise God. We see in Acts 2, 42 to 47, another means is attractive lives of the believers. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food and glad and generous hearts, praising God and, and having favor with all people. The Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. How the Christians lived by treating one another pointed others to Christ. The love that they had for each other was a foreshadowing of the love Christ had poured out on them already as we have seen in the past in John 13. That is repeated in 1 John 4. Brothers, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Because the next part of that is, in this is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. But there's more than that. In Acts eleven twenty nine, 29, we see how the brothers of another church were sending relief to another church. It wasn't just Christians who were near, but also Christians who were far. We seek to do this ourselves when we pray for another church by being an encouragement, by helping as we can, by giving to church planting. We too have received this from other churches. And this all points to the message about Jesus Christ and how the gospel shaped the early church. The lives of the early Christians pointed to the gospel. But the main reason, the main means that God used to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, the message about Jesus, is this, is preaching the word. We have this right here in 2 Timothy 4.12. It's like plastered right on the pulpit. It says, preach the word. The main means that the message of Jesus is going out is the preaching of the word. Yes, live an attractive life. Yes, do good things because it reflects who you are in Christ. But at some point, you need to open your mouth and say, Christ died for your sins and rose again. Maybe not exactly those words. Maybe expound a little bit more. The main way that we see in Acts that the message is sent out is through the preaching of the word. And this is why, as a church, we hold up the preaching of the word of God. This is, we do this in your listening, your worshiping in your listening, and in my preaching. They're all an act of worship. And all, overall, means is that God is sovereign, though. So let us never forget that. I praise God for that, especially if the sermon is a dive. Because God still uses it. Especially if you can't remember all of the points that the teacher taught you in Sunday school about what the gospel is as you're talking with your neighbor. God still uses that. 
Let us never forget that. So even with all of these acts that we think are man-made, let us never forget how God used an unbeliever to profoundly proclaim these words in Acts 5, 38, 39. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them, leave them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But... If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Guess what happened? You and I are here. Mark Dever put it this way. When you read through the book of Acts, you will find this comfort and encouragement. Behind it all is God. Oh, weary worker, discouraged disciple, tired Christian, listen to God's word and see him speak and act with power. God promises to pour out his spirit in Peter's Pentecost sermon in chapter 2, verse 17. God calls people to repentance in chapter 2, 38, 39, who will call upon the name of the Lord, all whom the Lord our God will call, the word says. God grants repentance. Peter says, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance into life. God appoints for eternal life. When the Gentiles heard this, as it says in 1348, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. In Acts 14.27, God opened the door of faith. The disciples heard about all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. In Acts 16, 14, we see God opened the hearts of individuals to respond to the gospel. In Acts 17, 26, God determines the times and place of where people live. And sometimes we struggle with this doctrine of election, as it's called. We think it's discouragement of evangelism. But that's not the case in the book of Acts. Faith in God's election is exactly what encourages evangelism. In Corinth, Paul left discouraged and was about to give up until he was strengthened by the vision that says in in, in 1 Corinthians 18, 9-10, One night the Lord God spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many in this city. Not many people had yet been converted in Corinth, but God encouraged Paul with the promise that he had had many people in the city. And let me ask you this question. Should we not assume God has people in our city and our neighborhood? who will respond when our own voice speaks the gospel. So God uses people as his means of spreading the gospel. It is God who saves and it's our job to be faithful. That's it. That's the means. The main means that God uses to spread the message about Jesus and the mission of Jesus is the proclamation of the message by ordinary people like you and me. Because thank God it's not dependent upon my ability to speak or yours. God is sovereign. So what? And here's the main point. 
Acts is a telling of how God sovereignly uses the church as, he, as his means to accomplish the mission of Jesus to spread the message of Jesus. On our door, leaving out the west entrance there, we have it plastered over of it, so hopefully you never miss it. If you do, I don't know how to make it bigger, sorry. It says, seeking to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we have received the message about Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and he rose again. And now we go out on mission to declare that same message to others so that more may worship him. The church spent a lot of time, our churches spend a lot of time being reactionary or defensive, don't we? But Jesus made a promise in Matthew 16. And I tell you to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Who is going to build the church? Me? You? Jesus? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Acts is a small window in seeing that promise being prevailed, being fulfilled, being promised. Let's go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us proclaim from the mountaintops as 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 to 57 says, and we spent our week at NBC memorizing this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that the word of the Lord increased not through political means, but by the means of the church faithfully proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. You cannot legislate this. But we have a job. We see in Acts the message about Jesus, that Christ died for our sins and rose again. We see the mission, the disciples of Jesus are to go out and proclaim the message and that God uses the means of ordinary people by the power of an extraordinary God who showed his love for his own by dying on the cross for our sins to go do, to do that. We go out with that, not in our own strength, but in the strength of God who simply spoke into being all things. And as we walk through Acts, we will see, as John Calvin said, spatial distance does not prevent Christ from being always present with his own, as he promised. Acts will show us how Christ's continuing presence and power enables you and I to fulfill his message, because God sovereignly uses the church as his means to accomplish the mission of Jesus, to spread the message of Jesus. So let me ask you this question again. Should we not assume God has people in this city, in your neighborhood, who will respond when our own voice speaks the gospel? In our world, it's easy to look and feel defeated, isn't it? You kind of read the news every day, and you're like, what in the world's going on? But I point you to 2,000 years of God's sovereignty. Longer than that if you go into the Old Testament. The might of the Roman Empire could not stop the spread of the word of the Lord. As hard as they tried, it actually made it spread more. Persecution happened, it scattered everybody. 
What did they do when they scattered and they started hanging out in other cities? They started talking about Jesus some more. What happens in that city when it begins to get persecuted? They spread some more and some more and some more. The faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ continues to go forth. We may feel discouraged when we read the news, but the word of the Lord will increase. It will not stop. If it was our will that accomplished the mission of God, we'd be in a lot of trouble. But it's not. It's God's. God's word can't be stopped. History says over and over again that kings, presidents, prime ministers, tyrants, religious groups have all tried. USSR? Tried. Iran? Tried. China? Tried. Schools are trying. And I tell you, again, Acts 19.20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. If you're in Christ, you get the job, the blessing, to be part of God's working in and through you to spread his message. It is now. Our job It is not to soul win. Our job is to proclaim Christ. Let us preach. Not just the pastor, let us all preach. It is the word of of God by the power of the Holy Spirit that people are saved. And I can't strongly encourage you enough that tonight or today at 4.30, we're going to be coming together to pray. And we're going to be praying about these things, about the church, about our neighborhood, and the gospel going forth. That's something that, there's lots of things we're going to be praying about. And I challenge you to come together to pray for our church, for other churches and the lost in the city. And let us pray that we may have boldness. Let's stop praying for opportunity, folks. Like, the, open your door. You need boldness. Pray for boldness. Let us pray for boldness to take the message about Jesus and be faithful to the mission of Jesus. And let us not just leave it to prayer, I love that, eh? Oh, I'm praying about it. Oh, that's, that's good. So what are you doing about it? Oh, I'm waiting for God to open the door and tell me what to do. He already did. He told you to go. Talk to your friends. Talk to your neighbors. Because God sovereignly uses the church as his means to accomplish the mission of Jesus to spread the message about Jesus. Let's pray.